Okay, so in keeping with um, the medieval interest, um, I'm going to read chapter three of Umberto Eco's book, Art and Beauty in the Middle Ages, which is called The Aesthetics of Proportion. And just as a bit of context in chapter two, which I haven't read, as in which I haven't read to you, <laughs> um, it's called, which is called Transcendental Beauty. He refers uh, um, to the Book of Wisdom. Um, which talked about how God created the world according to number, weight and measure. And it defines um, a triad, let's say, of terms, um, which is um, number, weight and measure, and um, also which continues onto ideas um, such as dimension, form and order, substance, nature, power, um, yeah, and so on. So just to say that um, he's introduced that the Middle Ages did have some of these ideas through the Book of Wisdom. Um, but Chapter 3 is um, called The Aesthetics of Proportion. 1. What is beauty of the body? A harmony of its parts with a certain pleasing colour. This was St. Augustine's formulation of a theory which was of central importance in the Middle Ages. It is not very different from Cicero. Quote, in the body, a certain symmetrical shape of the limbs combined with a certain charm of colouring is described as beauty. Thus, he did sum up the Stoic and classical tradition uh, embodied in the phrase and there's a Greek phrase that hasn't been translated. <laughs> the most ancient and best established concept in this aesthetic was that of congruence, congruentia, of proportion or number, a concept whose lineage went back to pre-Socratic times. It expressed an essentially quantitative conception of beauty, which cropped up again and again in Greek thought, in Pythagoras, in Plato, in Aristotle and received its classical formulation in the canon of Polyclitus, and in Garland's subsequent exposition of Polyclitus's doctrines. The canon of Polyclitus, Polyclitus, yes, itself had been concerned largely with practical, technical issues, but it was drawn into the current of Pythagorean speculation and ended up buttressing a dogmatic philosophy of art and beauty. The only extant fragment from it is the proposition that, quote, the beautiful comes about little by little through many numbers, end quote. Garland, in his summary of the canon, defined beauty as follows, quote, beauty does not consist in the elements, but in the harmonious proportion of the parts, the proportion of one finger to the other, of all the fingers to the rest of the hand, of all parts to the others, as is written in the canon of Polyclitus. This line of thinking generated a simple and universal aesthetic theory, one that articulated a formal, almost mathematical concept of beauty. Its many variations are reducible to the one fundamental principle of unity in variety. The other source of the medieval theory of proportion was Vitruvius 
From the 9th century onwards, Vitruvius was constantly cited in philosophical and technical manuals alike. Uh Aha. Side note. Uh, Vitruvius was being read uh, through the 9th century onwards, and my understanding was that it was only found in the Renaissance. So this is a huge deal. (laughs) Anyway. Um... Vitruvius was constantly cited in philosophical and technical manuals alike. He supplied them with a vocabulary, terms like proportion and symmetry, and also with a number of formulations of the aesthetics of proportion. For instance, quote, proportion consists in taking a fixed nodule in each case, both for the parts of a building and for the whole. Or, again, he defines proportion as, quote, the appropriate harmony arising out of the details of the work itself, the correspondence of each given detail among the separate details to the form of the design as a whole. In the 13th century, Vincent de Beauvais developed the Vitruvian theory of the proportions of the human figure in his Speculum Naturale. This work is rather Greek in spirit, for it is a collection of rules according to which the dimensions of a beautiful object are determined by the relations among themselves, rather than their relations to an abstract numerical unity. For instance, the face is said to be one-tenth of the size of the body. Proportion is here conceived of not as something grounded in abstract number alone, but as an organic and concrete harmony. It was from these sources then that the theory of proportion descended into the Middle Ages. At the borders between the classical and the medieval worlds, we find St. Augustine and Boethius. Boethius. Both of these transmitted onwards to more, more Pythagorean aspects of the philosophy of proportion, for they dealt with it chiefly in the context of musical theory. And there's a footnote that says, in the Middle Ages, Pythagoras was regarded as the most outstanding figure in the history of music. In Boethius, we find also a very typical feature of the medieval mentality. When he speaks of music, he means the mathematical science of musical laws. Side note, that's also um, something that Vitruvius talks about in his 10 books. He considered that a true musician was a theorist, a student of the mathematical laws of sound. Instrumentalists were unwitting servants. The composer dwelt in the sphere of instinct, ignorant of the ineffable beauty which theory alone can reveal. Quote, he is born to song, not by speculation and reason, but by a kind of natural instinct. The name of musician belonged primarily to people who judged music in the light of reason. Boethius seemed almost to congratulate Pythagoras for undertaking to study music, quote, setting aside the judgment of of the ears. His approach to musical experiment and likewise the general approach of the early Middle Ages was that of a scientist. 
still. This very abstract concept of proportion subsequently led to inquiries into the actual structures of sense experience, and a familiarity with the creative act led to a more concrete idea of proportion. It must also be remembered that the concept of proportion came to Boeth Boethius from the classical tradition, so that his theories were not just invented abstractions. The outlook of Boethius was that of a sensitive intellectual in an age of profound crisis, an age occupied with the destruction of seemingly irreplaceable values. The classical world was vanishing before his, his eyes, the eyes of the last humanist. Um, just if so you know, it's his name is spelt B-O-E-T-H-I-U-S. It was a barbaric time in which the cultivation of letters was dying out. The breakup of Europe had reached one of the, its most tragic moments. Boethius sought refuge by subscribing to values which could not be destroyed, the laws of number, which would govern art and nature no matter what came to pass. Even in moments of greatest optimism about the beauty of the world, his outlook was that of a sage concealing a distrust of the phenomenal world behind an admiration for the beauty of mathematical noumena. The aesthetics of proportion, therefore, entered the Middle Ages as a dogma for which it seemed no verification was needed. But in the in the event, it stimulated a number of active and fruitful attempts to verify it. The Boethian theory of music is a familiar one. Pythagoras had, had observed that a blacksmith's hammer struck his anvil with different notes, and that this sound was proportional to the weight of the hammers. Sound was thus governed by number, and this was so irrespective of whether sound was taken as a physical or as an artistic phenomenon. Consonance, Bothius wrote, quote, regulates all musical modulations and cannot exist without sound. Again, he defined consonance as, quote, a unified concordance of sounds, dissimilar in themselves. And it pleases the listener because, quote, Consonance is a mixture of high and low sounds striking the ear sweetly and uniformly. And so the text that that's from of his is called De Institutione Musica. As for the aesthetic experience of music, this also was grounded in the principle of proportion. For human nature turns away from discordant modes, but surrenders itself to those which are congenial. Extra support for this view came from educational theory, which held that different musical modes had differing effects upon people. Some rhythms were harsh and some were temperate. Some were suitable for children, some were soft and lascivious. The Spartans... Boethius reminds us, believed that they could influence their souls by music, and Pythagoras once calmed and sobered a drunken youth by making him listen to a melody in the hypophyrigan yeah, mode in spondaic rhythm. The Phrygian mode would have overexcited him. The Pythagoreans made use of certain lullabies to help them to get to sleep, 
and when they awoke they shook the sleep from their eyes with the help of music. Boethius explained all of this in terms of the theory of proportion. The soul and the body, he said, are subject to the same laws that govern music, and these same proportions are to be found in the cosmos itself. Microcosm and macrocosm are tied by the same knot, simultaneously mathematical and aesthetic. Man conforms to the measure of the world and takes pleasure in every manifestation of this conformity. Quote, we love similarity, but hate and resent dissimilarity. The theory of proportion in the human psyche underwent some interesting developments in medieval aesthetics, but it was the Boethian conception of proportion in the universe that caught their imagination most. One of its chief elements was the belief that there was a musica mundana, that is, a Pythagorean theory of music of the spheres, a harmony produced by the seven planets orbiting around a motionless earth. According to Pythagoras, each planet generated a note of the scale, the pitch heightening according to the distance from the earth, according that is to the planet's velocity. Together they produced a most exquisite music, which human beings, due to the inadequacy of their senses, were unable to hear. Jerome of Moravia drew a rather unhappy analogy with our inability to perceive the same range of smells as dogs. We can see here some of the limitations of the medieval weakness for pure theory. For of course, if each planet produced one note of the scale, together they would sound very discordant indeed. The medieval theorist refused to worry about this difficulty so long as he was convinced of the numerical correspondences. All through the Middle Ages, he was to interpret his experience in terms of this platonic type of certainty, and we may well agree that the ways of science are infinite when we recall that Renaissance astronomers were to deduce that the Earth moved from the premise, that it had to do so in order to produce the eighth note and so complete the scale. On the other hand, the theory of musica mundana led also to the more concrete conception of beauty, of beauty in the cycles of the universe, in the regular movements of time and the seasons, in the composition of the elements, the rhythms of nature, the motions and humours of biological life, the total harmony in short, of microcosm and macrocosm. The medievals developed an infinity of variations on this theme of musical harmony of the world. In his Liber Duodecim Questionum, Honorius of Orton devotes, <laughs> sorry, but it's just funny that I've also added Latin names to this um, podcast. <laughs> Honorius of Orton devoted <laughs> of Orton devoted a whole chapter to explaining quote, that the universe is ordered like a cythera, in which there is a consonance of different kinds of things like chords. And John Scotus Erigena remarked that the beauty of creation was due to a consonance of similars and dissimilars in a harmony each of whose parts in isolation was insignificant, 
but whose creation produced the beauty of all things. 2. In the 12th century, not all speculation of this kind derived from the theory of music. The school of Chartres, Chartres remained faithful to the Platonic heritage of the Timaeus and developed a kind of Timaic cosmology. However, it had roots also in a partly aesthetical, partly mathematical world As Tilio Gregory writes, quote, their picture of the cosmos was a development, in terms of Boethius's writings on arithmetic, of the Augustinian principle that God disposes the world according to ordo et mensura, a principle that combines the classical concept of the cosmos as consentiens continuata cognatio with the principle of divinity who is life, providence and destiny. And this vision of things had first appeared in the Timaeus. Quote, God, sorry, Timaeus is by Plato. God purposing to make it, in brackets, the universe, most nearly like the every way perfect and fairest of intelligible things, fashioned one visible living creature containing within itself all living things which are by their nature of its own kind, in brackets, that is, are visible. The fairest of all bonds is that which makes itself and the terms it binds together most utterly one, and this is most perfectly affected by a progression. For the school of Chartres, the work of God was the mm, word that's not translated, the all-encompassing order opposite of primeval chaos. Nature was the mediator of his operations, capital H. There was, as William of Conches put it, quote, a certain force inherent in things, making similars out of similar things. Nature in the Chartrian metaphysics was not merely an allegorical personification, but an active force which presided at the birth and the becoming of things. And then there was the embellishing of the world, exornatio mundi, the process of completing and perfecting which nature in all its organic complexity actuates in the world after its creation. Quote, the beauty of the world, wrote William of Conscious, lies in the things being in their own element, such as stars in the sky, birds in the air, fish in water, men on earth. That is the furnishing end quote. That is the furnishing or fitting out of the world ornatus mundi consists of the ordering of creation. It flourishes whenever the matter of creation begins to differentiate itself according to weight and number, and to take on shape and colour in its proper milieu within the universe. So even in a cosmological theory like this. The term ornatus seems to connote an individuating structure in things. Later on in the 13th century, this concept became the foundation for a theory of beauty centred on the notion of form. In fact, the harmony of the cosmos looks, like, looks very like an expanded metaphor for the organic perfection of individual forms 
both natural and artistic. In this theory, the rigid logic of mathematics is tempered by a sensitivity to the organic qualities of nature. William of Conscious, Thierry, Thierry of Chartres, Bernard of Tours and Alan of Lille preferred not to speak of the immutable mathematical order, but rather of an organic process whose nature was best explained by reference to its author. The second person of the Trinity was the formal cause or organising principle of this aesthetic harmony. While the Father was its efficient cause and the Spirit its final cause, the Amor et Connexio Anima Mundi, it was nature, not number, which governed the earth, nature of which Alan of Lille wrote. O child of God, mother of creation, bond of the universe and its stable link, bright gem of those on earth, mirror for mortals, light bearer for the world, peace, love, virtue, guide, power, order, law, end, way, leader, source, life, light, splendor, beauty, form, rule of the world. In these and similar visions of cosmic harmony, many of the problems connected with negative features of the world found a solution. Even ugliness found its place through proportion and contrast in the harmony of things. It was a view common to all the scholastics that beauty was born out of contrasts. Even monsters acquired a certain justification and dignity from their participation in the music of creation. Evil itself became good and beautiful, for good was born from it and shone out more brightly in contrast. 3. The 12th century then developed and systematised ideas drawn for, from Pythagorean cosmology. And in so doing, it came up with yet another theory, that of homo quadratus, literally meaning squared man. In origin, it was connected with Chalcidius and especially Macrobius, who wrote that the world is man writ large and man is the world writ small. The medieval love of allegory was here enriched by an account of the relation between microcosm and macrocosm, which was couched in terms of mathematical archetypes. According to the theory of Homo Quadratus, number is the principle of the universe, and numbers possess symbolical meanings which are grounded in correspondences at once numerical and aesthetic. Initially, the theory referred to music, Thus, an anonymous Cartesian monk said that there were eight musical tones, four discovered by the ancients and four more added in modern times. Quote, For they, the ancients, argued in the following way. As it is in nature, so it ought to be in art. But nature divides itself in a quadripartite matter. manner. There are four regions of the earth, four elements, four primary qualities, four winds, four conditions of the body, four virtues of the soul, and so on. It was commonly believed, in fact, that the number four had some kind of fundamental significance. There were four cardinal points, four winds, four phases of the moon, four seasons, 
four letters in the name Adam, and four was the constitutive, constitutive number of Plato's tetrahedron, which corresponded to fire. Vitruvius taught that four was the number of man because the distance between his extended arms was the same as his height, thus giving the base and height of a square. Four was the number of moral perfection, and men experienced in the struggle for moral perfection, perfection were called tetra tetragonal. However, homo quadratus was also pentagonal. For five was another number of arcane significance, which symbolised mystical and aesthetic perfection. Five was a circular number. There were five essences of things, five elementary zones, five genera of living creatures, birds, fish, plants, animals, men. Five was the number of divinity and was scattered throughout the scriptures, the Pentateuch, the five wounds. The number five was found in man, for if the extremities of his body were joined by straight lines, they formed a pentagon, an image found in Villard de Honnecourt, and also in the much better known drawing by Leonardo. The mysticism of Saint Hildegard was based upon the symbolism of proportion and the mysterious fascination of the pentad. It was she who spoke of the symphonic organisation of nature and of how the experience of the absolute unfolded in the manner of music. Hugo of Saint Victor said that the body and soul reflected the perfection of the divine beauty, the body being founded on even numbers, imperfect and unstable, and the soul on odd numbers, stable and perfect. The spiritual life, he added, is based on mathematical dialectic, which is founded in turn upon the perfection of the number 10. Side note, um, I think in Vitruvius he mentioned something about humans also having 10, yeah, 10 fingers or something, um, and 10 being somehow a perfect number. Obviously, um, he has 10 books, which um, make no sense um, in themselves, let's say. They're not... Um, well thematically organised. So he just must have liked the number 10. <laughs> this quote, aesthetics of number, can be clarified further by reference to something which has been at times misunderstood. The use of the expression tetragonal to indicate moral restitude reminds us that the harmony of uprightness or probity, aka honestas, was interpreted allegorically as a numerical harmony and more critically as the proportion between an action and its end. Thus the medievals have been accused of reducing the beautiful to the useful or the moral. However, the notion of ethical perfection that emerges from this comparison of microcosm and macrocosm is in fact aesthetic in character. Far from reducing the aesthetic to the ethical, the medievals gave moral values an aesthetic foundation, though even this is to an extent misleading, since number or order or proportion is as much ontological as it is ethical and aesthetic. 
Aesthetic qualities predominate if one adopts a contemplative perspective on something rather than an active role. Although contemplation is always mixed or impure because of the close integration of values, point of view was the important thing. Here is Vincent of Beauvais. Quote, Verily, how great is even the humblest beauty of this world and how pleasing to the eye of reason, diligently considering not only the modes and numbers and orders of things, so decorously appointed throughout the universe, but also the revolving ages which are ceaselessly uncoiled through abatements and successions and are marked by the death of what is born. I confess sinner as I am, with mind befouled in flesh, that I am moved with spiritual sweetness towards the creator and ruler of this world, and honour him with greater veneration, when I behold at once the magnitude and beauty and permanence of his creation. Vincent of Beauvoir takes us to the 13th century. However, by this time, cosmological aesthetics had already become more concrete in an aesthetics of form. The concept of proportion expanded in scope, and the scholastics, especially Saint Bonaventure, were compelled by their systemic, systemic, systematic principles to return to an Augustinian formula, that of numerical balancing or equilibrium, aequalitas, or more simply, Unity in variety. 4. The aesthetics of proportion began with the musical theories of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, and as it is developed, and as it developed, it assumed ever more complex forms. It also drew closer to everyday artistic practices. In musical theory, the concept of proportion began to assume technical overtones even as early as the 9th century, we find the first philosophical discussion of counterpoint. However, historians of music have begun to realise that what was employed here was not the general concept of proportion, but certain specific proportions. Round about the year 850, hymns of rejoicing based upon the Alleluia refrain began to feature the use of trope. Each syllable was made to correspond with a new phrase of the melody. Inevitably, this led people to think about music in terms of proportion. Diastema was invented in the 10th century, that is, indicating the pitch of notes or neumes by vertical placing on the page. In the 11th century, we find that the two voices in diaphony, no longer in unison, each follows its own melodic line. Diaphony led to descant, and this in turn led to the great 12th century inventions of polyphony. In, a, in an organum by peritin, there might be a complex movement built upon a single generating bass note, like the soaring spires of a Gothic cathedral. Thus did the medieval musician give a significance to the concepts of antiquity, which is concrete indeed beside the platonic abstractions of Boethius. Harmony, a quote, fitting union of different sounds, had become a technical aesthetic value realised in lived experience. Whosoever, 
quote, whosoever wishes to compose a conductus must first find a canto, the most beautiful that he can. Then he must use it to, to construct a discount, end quote. A metaphysical principle had become an artistic one. The view that the metaphysics of beauty and the theory of art never overlapped is wrong. Literature also abounded with precepts that involved the concept of proportion. Geoffrey of Vinsorf in Poetria Nova said that literary ornament was governed by decorum and decorum was a qualitative rather than numerical notion grounded in phonetic and psychological requirements. Thus, it was decorous or fitting to describe gold as fulvum, milk as ninitum, and rose as priorubisunda, honey as lucinflum, dulciflum, sorry. The style, in short, should suit the subject matter. The concept of decorum gave rise to theories of descriptive similes, and there were rules to be followed also when writing both about the natural order and about the eighth eight species of the artificial order. It was a poetics expounded by a number of authors, and as Edmund Farrell comments, quote, they knew, for instance, what effects they could achieve by the symmetry of diptychs and triptychs. They knew how to suspend the course of the narration and how to connect a number of themes that were being unfolded simultaneously, end quote. Many of the medieval romances followed these rules. The aesthetic principle had turned initially into a methodology of poetics and then into a real technique. And at the same time, the opposite process was taking place. That is, theory was moving closer to experience. One common literary principle in the Middle Ages was that of brevity. It was recommended by Alcuin, for instance, in his De Rhetorica and meant, in effect, the excision of anything superfluous. Nowadays, we might speak of what is, quote, appropriate in connection with the construction of imaginative literature. The medievals spoke instead of proportion, and thus tend to confuse us by their use of the word overloaded with meanings. Turning next to the plastic and figural arts, we find again that the concept of symmetry was very common due mainly to the influence of Vitruvius. Vincent of Beauvoir, following in his footsteps, wrote that architecture consists of order, disposition, eurythmy, symmetry and beauty. The principle of proportion was also the basis for a kind of heraldic symbolism employed in architectural practice. This was an esoteric business, a kind of mysticism of proportion. It began with the Pythagoreans and, although it was exercised by scholasticism, it lived on in artisan circles as a kind of heraldry, used to give an extra importance to the trade and to preserve its rights and secrets. This is the most likely explanation for the frequency of pentagonal motifs in Gothic art, especially rose ornaments in cathedrals. The five-petaled rose was an image of the pentad, in addition to its many other symbolic meanings in medieval times, from the romance of the rose to the wars of the roses. It would be quite wrong to look upon every representation of the pentad as a mark 
mark of some esoteric religion, but it certainly bore witness to an aesthetic principle or ideal. The Masonic guilds used it as the basis of their rituals, and this seems to show again an awareness of a connection between craft and the aesthetic. We find this same kind of thing in the geometrical marks used by artisans as their signatures. Studies of the Balhuta, a secret society of master masons, stonecutters and carpenters in the Holy Roman Empire, show that their signa lampidaria, that is, the personal signs with, with which they marked important parts of their work, such as cornerstones, were geometrical marks based upon common master keys or grids. The underlying belief was that locating the centre of symmetry meant locating the way, the truth and the light. Aesthetic custom and theological doctrine went hand in hand. The, aesthetic, the aesthetics of proportion was the medieval aesthetic par excellence. The principle and criterion of symmetry, even if in its most elementary forms, was rooted in the very instincts of the medieval soul. It had an influence even upon medieval iconography. This iconography derived from the Bible and the liturgy and from so-called exemplar praedicandi. These, and there's a footnote that just says, stories used in sermons to illustrate or drive home a point. In the Middle Ages, many of these were circulated in anthologies known as Libri Exemplarum. But often enough, the requirements of symmetry modified the tradition, violating even the most ingrained beliefs and the most sacrosanct details. Thus, in a painting in Soissons, we find that one of the Magi is omitted because a third figure would have destroyed the balance of the composition. Similarly, Similarly, in Palmer Cathedral, we find St. Martin dividing his cloak with two beggars instead of one. In St. Cujar de Valve in Catalonia, there are two good shepherds instead of one. Similar formal considerations are found to account for two-headed eagles and two-tailed mermaids. The demands of symmetry, in short, help to determine the repertoire of symbols. Another somewhat similar law, similar law to which medieval art was subject was that of the frame. For instance, a certain figure would have to be fitted into a shape of a door column or the lunette on a tympanum, tympanum or the trunk of a capital. Sometimes the figures acquired an added grace from their very circumscription. Thus, in the medallions representing the months on the facade of St. Denis, peasants who are harvesting grain appear, due to the circular composition, to perform a kind of dance. Or they might acquire an added expressiveness, like the sculptures on the doorway of St. Mark in Venice. Or again, the result might be romantic and grotesque, as in the vigorous and contorted figures on the candelabrum in St. Paul without the walls. There was in fact a circle of inextricable causes and effects, theoretical precepts interacting with artistic practices and habits of composition. 
It is interesting to see how many features of medieval art, whether stylized and heraldic or hallucinatory and deformed, originated in the demands of form rather than expression. And this was no accident. Indeed, it may well have been in the forefront of artists' intentions and concerns, for medieval theories of art are invariably theories of formal composition, not of feeling and expression. All of the medieval treatises on the figurative arts, and there's a footnote that says two notable examples are the Painter's Manual of Mount Athos and Il Libro dell'Arte by Sanino Sanini. So all the medieval treatises on the figurative arts reveal an ambition to raise them to the same mathematical level as music. In these treaties, mathematical conceptions are translated into canons of practice and rules of composition, usually detached from the matrix of cosmology and philosophy, though united to them nevertheless. By sub nevertheless, by subterranean currents of taste and preference. A useful illustration of this point is the album or livre de portraiture of Villard de Honnecourt. In this work, all the representations of human figure are laid out geometrically. The aim is not to present them in an abstract and stylized manner, but rather to show how to endow the human figure with life and movement. The figures are Gothic in conception, yet they illustrate a return of rules of proportion and echo the Vitruvian theory of the human body. And in this last analysis, Villard's geometrical schemas of the human figure, which, to repeat the point, are meant to serve as guidelines and norms for lively and realistic drawing, can be regarded as a reflection of a theory of beauty. This is the theory that beauty resides in the proportion which reveals and is produced by the splendour of form, where form means the quiditas, the essence of things. Once the medievals had developed fully a metaphysics of beauty, it followed that proportion, since it was an aspect of beauty, was considered to participate in its transcendental nature. Proportion like being was not expressible in a single definition, but could be realised on diverse and multiple levels. Just as there were infinite ways of being, so there were infinite ways of making things in accordance with proportion. This idea of proportion was a notable liberation of the concept on a theoretical level, though in fact medieval culture had already acquired an experiential knowledge of it. In music, for instance, it had been realised that once a given mode was postulated, another mode could be produced simply by sharpening or flattening certain notes. Or, a simple reversal of the Lydian mode would produce the Dorian mode. Or we may take the case of musical intervals. As early as the 9th century, Hucbold and St. Armand recognised that the fifth was an imperfect consonance, yet in the 12th century, the rule books were still referring to it as a perfect consonance. In the 13th century, the third joined the rank of recognised consonances. 
We can see, therefore, that the medievals understood proportion in the context of experience, in the progressive acquisition of new types of correspondence that they found to be enjoyable and appropriate. The same thing is to be found in literature. As early as the 8th century, Bede, or Bede in his Ars Metrica, formulated a distinction between metre and rhythm, a distinction as it happens between quantitative and syllabic verse. He declared that each of these poetic modes possessed its own distinctive type of proportion. In succeeding centuries, several authors repeated this. When eventually all of these experiences had been homologized in a theological metaphysics, the concept of proportion was able to sustain more complex determinations, as we shall see when we come to the Thomistic theory of form. Still, the aesthetics of proportion always remained a quantitative aesthetics. It could never explain satisfactorily the medieval pleasure in light and colour, which was a qualitative experience. And I guess, um, so that's the end of that chapter. And I guess, if I'm honest, I think that um, perhaps my interest in the medieval is for precisely um, a qualitative approach to architecture.